0: Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources.
1: Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is really an exciting one because we're going to delve into academia a little bit. In terms of the university post-secondary setting, we're going to be talking about the field of brain health, of course, but also a bit into the, the world of occupational medicine and what that really means from a, not just a post-secondary research perspective, but what are some of the educational topics that we cover in that? What are the practical applications for that? Where is this field currently? Where has it been? And really, maybe if we delve into the crystal ball, where do we think it might be going? So very excited to bring somebody on today who's got a wealth of experience in this world, comes from a family who really understands the world of brain health at a high level, and maybe we'll hit on that a little bit as well. It's kind of all in the family here in terms of brain health. Coming to us all the way from Toronto, Ontario today, Dr. Aaron Thompson. Thank you for joining us today, Aaron.
0: Oh, It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Oh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So Aaron, in his role at the University of Toronto, really works in the field of occupational medicine. And for people out there, I mean, I think we can make a pretty informed estimate as to what that really involves. But maybe for the listeners today, if you wouldn't mind, when we think about this world of of brain health, right, which is a very uh, general sort of wide ranging term, what would your main message be for those people listening? These could be individuals who are interested in improving their own brain health. These could be also, you know, professors at universities who are maybe working in neurology or in occupational therapy, or these could be, you know, people just really passionate and interested in the topic. What's your main message around the world, your lens of brain health and brain mastery? Help us to understand kind of where you come from in this space.
0: Sure. So... Just to give everyone some background, so I am an occupational medicine specialist, and what that really means is that in the whole realm of medicine, occupational medicine is a subspecialty of internal medicine, as well as public health preventive medicine. And what we do in occupational medicine is really, first of all, assess anyone who may have an occupational disease or injury that stems from their work, but also assessing how that person's condition whatever impairments they may have how that affects their ability to work and we really have a very strong focus on keeping people actively employed there's a recognition that work is a really important determinant of health both psychological mm-hmm. and physical and so what we try and do is to pull on all the levers to make sure that people can remain actively employed and get all the health and quality of life benefits from that, despite whatever ongoing impairments they have, which is really relevant when it comes to brain injury, whether it's moderate or severe brain injury or concussion, MTBI. And it's particularly relevant in the world of brain injury because it's not just physical symptoms, but there's cognitive symptoms that are involved. And so, applying a lens looking at the whole person how they're functioning how we can improve their function and keep them uh, actively employed is a really essential and difficult question in this field so uh, i think really to start with the main message here is that there's an abundance of literature in the area of mtbi and moderate and severe head injury as well and that indicates that workers with brain injury who remain employed or are able to be employed in some capacity do report better health status
1: mm-hmm. they
0: report improved sense of well-being better social integration within their communities less use of health services and overall, just a better quality of life. So this is a really important goal to always have on our, on our radar, that how can we keep people active and actively employed as one, but also just you know functioning in all those activities that improve quality of life outside of work too, just really maximizing function.
1: I love that. And I think it's such a cool lens. You know, I think you're the first guest to really delve a little bit deeper into this particular topic at that level of really your health, your why almost your purpose, right? And being able to in a meaningful way engage with that purpose while, you know, at the same time, sometimes rehabilitating from an injury. And you know, that 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 was a really interesting way to to show the roadmap though. I think it's a really cool perspective because sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle, I think. I, I don't know what you think, but I think sometimes that message can get lost.
0: It does. It does. And When we're talking about recovery, another thing that's not recognized is that active participation in activities, whether it's work or outside of work, that active participation is actually therapeutic. It's part of the recovery process. And so when we're just focusing on, all right, let's treat this symptom. Let's try and just focus on that particular impairment and treat it and get it better, we're missing half the equation of the recovery process. So getting the person active, getting them engaged and doing activities that they enjoy or are meaningful, including work, that's part of the recovery journey. And it has a huge impact on outcome and prognosis. So highlighting the need to include that in the treatment plan, actually, is really important. I talk about prescribing return to work and prescribing activity, because it is a treatment. And it has, if I'm going to extend the analogy to really explain it, it's a treatment in so many ways. If you think about a medication, if you're prescribing a medication, you're thinking about, okay, first of all, is the medication indicated? Then you're thinking about, all right, if it is indicated at what dose? right? So what's the dose? And you're also mindful of risk and benefit. So you're thinking about a therapeutic window. And so that dose, if it's too much, it could cause harm. If it's too little, it's going to be no benefit at all. And so thinking about activity and discussing activity as well as return to work as a prescription is actually a really useful analogy.
1: I love that. Yes, we will hear that again. That was a very, very good way to explain it. Because otherwise it can get watered down, right? And that's the thing. When we look at sometimes there's a bit of friction, not friction necessarily, but noted difference between a pharmaceutical dosage versus a behavioral dosage. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like looking at these treatment plans as the medicine. And it makes me think of Dr. John Rady, who, you know, wonderful guy, who, you know, I had the, the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with. And to my mind, to my understanding, least the way I choose to believe it, my understanding of it, was he was one of the first kind of psychiatrists out there to prescribe aerobic exercise for attention disorder, whereas the standard of care was much more, okay, do the assessment under the supervision of a parent over the course of a few days, and then do the assessment under the the supervision of the teacher, compare those two data points, and then we'll try to discern which pharmaceutical kind of way to take to ultimately help the, the person, which is a great thing. Maybe he looked at it differently, which I thought was really interesting saying, you know, if you could do this, you could get all the good release of the dopamine, the serotonin, but also get that release of the BDNF to really help to support the precursors to learning, which I think it kind of relates to what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, it's very analogous. And, you know, we see it in other areas, too, with, with exercise therapy, you know, the work of Barry Willer, John mm-hmm. Letty. Yeah, Letty. That? The exercise intervention, exercise prescription, the Buffalo treadmill test, you know, where it's, it's again, a similar analogy where you're assessing somebody's capacity and you're getting them to partake in that activity as a therapeutic intervention, that sub-symptom threshold, but to really optimize the benefits so for a different reason than the analogy you just provided that. You know, for the exercise therapy, we're talking about autonomic function and, and mm-hmm. getting that autonomic function back on track. But for all of these interventions, thinking about it as a prescription and what dose do we want to prescribe to optimize benefit, minimize risk is really helpful.
1: I love that. And I, I, what I really like about it is it's so tangible. What I struggle with it, though, too, is a lot of people just say, oh, well, then go and exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, if it were only that easy, Right. That's hard for anybody out there to start a new routine, a habit, whatever it might be. But for somebody that's got persisting symptoms, and then also the psychological impact of some of those, it can be a challenging thing to start. That's where I like you talk about dosage, like, how do we really fit this within the therapeutic box that we want to work towards and measure, hopefully towards more of a full return to work. I really appreciate your perspective on that.
0: That's a good point, too, in terms of barriers and, you know, just saying go out and exercise or go out and do your regular activities and everything is going to be fine. It's it's really not helpful uh, to be that unstructured, right? Because people are symptomatic. People do have symptoms that run the gambit of somatic symptoms, neurocognitive symptoms, emotional symptoms, all of these things and the presence of those symptoms. Are a major barrier if you don't have some kind of oversight reassurance and guidance with how to manage them while you're partaking in these activities, and that can be very scary if somebody has symptom exacerbation in any of the any of the spheres, then that's going to of course make them withdraw and say, "All right, you know what?" I'm going to throw up my hands and not do this. And so one of the things that we run into when, and I'm just talking about return to activity in general, Mm -hmm. there's going to be symptom exacerbation. When somebody does that activity, whether it be cognitive or physical, and they get beyond their symptom threshold. And that exacerbation is not going to be a comfortable experience, right? So I try and flip that around and say, okay, we know that happened. The symptom exacerbation in the long-term is not going to worsen prognosis. In the short-term, it was bad. And it may take a number of days to recover from that, for sure. But let's use this as a learning experience. What activity were you doing at what level that caused that? And now all of a sudden we have an idea. We've learned something. We've learned that that's the symptom threshold. So the idea stemming from that is not to withdraw from all activity because it caused symptoms. It's okay. Now we know what level we can do the activity at before getting to that symptom threshold, which is really useful information. So if we use that That analogy to the exercise testing and the Buffalo concussion treadmill test, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what's happening, right? You're actually pushing somebody to exercise to their symptom threshold so that you now know what that target heart rate was that caused it. And then you're prescribing uh, a level of activity at a lower Subsymptom threshold heart rate. You can apply the same thing to any activity. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I was working on the computer for uh, whatever number of hours doing this and oh, I got just, you know, the worst headache and brain fog fatigue. I just couldn't think anymore. All right, so we know that that was too much. So let's scale it back by 50%. All right, so you can have some screen time. You can do a little bit on the computer, but let's limit it to an hour. Mm -hmm. see how it goes, right? And then you can slowly progress. So, and apply it to any of those activities, avocational, occupational, whichever, and work around that. The other point that's actually quite important to make here is that the presence of symptoms alone, and I know this is easier said than done, should not be a barrier to activity, because everyone has some baseline symptoms. It's really how do those symptoms respond to the activity. So if they're worsened by the activity, then we've hit symptom threshold. But if the baseline symptoms before the activity don't change with the activity, then the activity is not worsening it, right? It makes it harder maybe to do the activity, but that in and of itself isn't a reason not to do it. If the symptoms are worse, you scale it back, but the presence of symptoms at baseline shouldn't be the barrier.
1: I love that. And I think that's such a good point. You know, what what I came to learn though, and what I think many people struggle with is the measurement of that. It can be challenging to do that. And you know, some of my work and I'm biased, right? But some of my work is more kind of um, in the kind of therapeutic side of, okay, in community, how do we more reliably measure some of these things so that we can compare ourselves against ourselves yesterday? It's really right. one type approach, not I'm going to be, you know, back up to here, or wherever I may have been pre-stroke or whatever may have occurred, but really providing me that context of, okay, when I started this therapeutic intervention at this particular dosage, this is where a symptom threshold was. However, it seems to be starting to change slightly as we dial up a little bit more and I, I build up slightly. I'm not going crazy, but I'm doing this and I'm measuring it. What role does that play in helping us to better understand? Because that's the thing therapeutically that I struggle with in community, no matter what it might be, whether it's, you know, a friend of mine trying to lose some weight or somebody trying to, you know, improve or reduce anxiety through other therapeutic interventions. What role does having that system play? And what are some of the systems you can use? Like if I'm trying to improve my running, Strava might be a good idea because it may help me to better quantify a more objectively what is going on. I don't know. It felt like pretty good, like five, you know, 95% think <laughs> This is the, so I'm
0: really happy you raised this. This is a really, uh, it's a great point. So, you know, there's that old saying, right? If you want to improve something, you measure it. And that ultimately is going to be your yardstick to, right. to improve. So you can have normative data from all different sources, measuring whatever, but does it really matter? People don't need to know if they're normal or not, right? Like mm-hmm. that's just a loaded term. <laughs> Everyone's different, right? And right. knowing if you're normal or not is compared to normative data is not helpful for that individual whatsoever. What is important is what you point out. What is their measure at baseline? So how are they improving? How are they comparing to that? So you mentioned Strava. So I'll I'll use a personal example. So I like to swim. I like to do long distance swimming. So am I trying to beat the best triathlete out there in terms of what their 1500 time is? No, I'm going to feel like garbage if I do that, right? I want to know if my 1500 time is five seconds better Yes. Than it was yesterday, right, or yeah. last week, and so you're all you always have to measure against your own baseline. Now, when it comes to the world of concussion. There are so many different tools depending on what you want to measure. So let's just talk about a generic one that everyone knows: the Rivermead, right? Yeah. So the Rivermead, it's not a diagnostic tool, and the reason why it's not a diagnostic tool is because everyone's baseline is different. Somebody might have baseline headaches all the time before their head injury. So having a four on that headache scale, that might be their baseline. What the Rivermead is really useful for, as are all these other tools, is to get a measure of where the person's at on that day, and then you know you apply whatever therapeutic interventions you can, which you know for example, returning to activity, trying activation, and all the rest, and you see where you stand a few weeks later, and if you 're improving, great, if things are getting worse, then all right, maybe we need to explore what's causing that worsening do we need to do further investigations, do we need to consider what the underlying causes are? Have we missed something? And it's always a good idea to measure, to see where we're going. If we're getting better, we're doing things correctly. If we're getting worse, then something may have been missed, or maybe the the, the interventions are not as effective, or potentially even causing harm, right? So we have to be really careful. And having that individualized measurement is, is really important to guide us. That's our That's our map.
1: I love that, and I think it's so true because I think in the work that I've been fortunate to be a part of and to ask many questions around to learn about, I feel fortunate that I get to ask a lot of questions, and I get oftentimes much more questions than answers, which is probably a sign we're doing something right. (laughs) Is is we're just constantly trying to learn, and you know, one of the areas that I think a lot of people struggle with around that complex mild, you know, TBI is baseline. Like that's just. I think that's problematic from many, per many sides. I, I think from everyone, actually everyone involved, you know, when I have now for whatever better or worse, but let's say we have, you know, CBC level uh, for blood work, at least we have some semblance of baseline. You can argue whether there that's a good baseline or not, but it is some level of baseline for when I go and get a ch- checkup as to what may be going on inside of my blood. But with brain health, that can be a bit challenging because what is that baseline, right? And I, and I have so much optimism. I'm an optimist by nature. I think there's a lot of really good organizations who I've heard of around the world that are trying to do a better job helping us to better understand some of our baseline. Obviously, in some cases, we get good neuropsychological measures. If you have a history of a learning disability and are fortunate enough to get an assessment, you may have that sort of baseline in place. But you know, I'm curious for you on an occupational side as we think about you know if I'm the forklift driver and I have these activities I need to accomplish to be able to to do you know on that particular side of it. I think we can establish baseline pretty well. But what do you what do you think about the whole concept of 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 starting to work towards getting better baselines around cognition and and you I, I mean there's a lot of different tools out there and I think a lot of them are really good, <laughs> mm-hmm. but Hi. What What are some ideas that you might have uh, around that topic, or what are some thoughts just generally that you might have around that? It's important
0: uh, to think about why we're measuring, and you know, there's mm-hmm. in, in medicine we the the first thing that we teach our medical students, the first thing we teach our residents is don't order a test unless you know what to do with the result. Right. So measurement is fine, but you have to have a plan in place. To whatever that result comes back as, how are you going to deal with it? And so, when we're when we're talking about measurement, for me, I, there's a diagnostic question sometimes, and that's why mm-hmm. you're why you're doing tests. And then the measurement we were just talking about is really to understand a certain parameter, and then apply it over, the same thing over time to test the efficacy of the intervention. Right. So that's mm-hmm. what we were, that's what we were just discussing. Yeah. Now, the, the piece around workability here, what we're talking about is function. And so sometimes I just like to step back and say, all right, we got all kinds of fancy tools. We got all you know that we can, we can try and apply, but at the end of the day, what really matters is your function. So yeah. let's use that as our measurement. So, say let's let's borrow something from the psychiatry psychology literature the goal attainment scale yeah so that's a really good example of an individualized functional outcome assessment where at the start of everything you're saying well what do you want to do and the person says well you know i don't know I, i want to be able to jog without getting Mm -hmm. symptoms, right? Or I want to be able to, I don't know, read a book (laughs) without getting a headache Yeah. these things, right? So that's a goal, right? So our goal is to get that person so that they can go for a jog in whatever, and we can work towards it. So using something like the goal attainment scale as an example, and function as the outcome, then you have something very real that the person's working towards. So that would be my kind of overarching general answer, that you, you tailor the program to the individual and to what their goals are.
1: Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And really, for people that's out there listening, it, it can be pretty confusing in this space. Sometimes there's a lot of assessments out there. Which one should I do for which population? But you know, what you said about you know, don't order the test unless you know what to do with the results. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> I don't think that's heard enough
0: it gets into the area of iatrogenic disability. So Mm -hmm. iatrogenic disability, uh, just for for the listeners, is when a medical intervention, which includes a test and measurement, those are medical interventions, when a medical intervention actually causes disability. And so let's use a classic example. Somebody has back pain, Mm -hmm. right? And they go and see their primary care provider and they say, oh yeah, you know, my back's really bothering me. Not really sure what to do about it. And the primary care provider says, well, hey, why don't we try and measure this, right? Let's get an MRI. And guess what? When you get an MRI and all of us, you know, other than the kids running around, we all have an abnormal MRI. I hate to say it, right? Yeah. There's going to be some degenerative changes. There's going to be some osteophytes there. There's going to yeah. be some disc bulges, all the rest, right? Does it mean it's causing any problems? Mm-hmm. Do we need to lose any sleep over it? No. Half the time, that's just an incidental finding. But if, Mark, I tell you, guess what? We got your MRI back and you have a bulging disc at L4 and yeah. there's a bunch of degenerative disc disease in your cervical spine. You're not going to sleep as well at night, right? And when you go out to go skiing or whatever, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I better take it easy. It's going to have a huge impact on your quality of life. That's a classic example of Mm iatrogenic disability where you stop partaking in the activities that you like because of some finding that Mm. is clinically meaningless that came up on a test. So here, when we're talking about measurement, we always have to be cognizant of that. And Let's not measure something. It gets back to what we said, unless we know what to do with it. So good.
1: Yeah. So good. And I appreciate your time today because I think that's a really, really great lens for everybody listening here. You know, we're, there are going to be these challenges in life. Obviously, when there is a, a concern, you know, do go see your primary medical care provider always and, and follow up and do that. But for those that might be in, still learning right now and trying to choose the right field to go into, you know, that's, that's, that's wonderful wisdom, you know, from somebody who's in the space of occupational medicine. And as we think about this lens, this world, and the why, you know, being that I know, for me, what I do is a huge part of my personality and and my purpose of what gets me up in the morning. Yes, I love my kids, I love my wife, love my dog, love it all. But, but, That My purpose within my work is very important to me, and and we want to try to find ways to uh, therapeutically help people get back into that, because that will not only impact them in terms of their productivity inside of that organization, but it really helps them for their health to be involved in that. And I love that perspective, because we've not hit on that perspective, really, with this amount of focus and expertise. And I just, again, I want to thank you for that, because I think it's such... It's a it's a message that for whatever reason seems to sometimes get lost in the narrative.
0: Yeah, it's a risk-benefit equation. Any intervention, any activity is a risk-benefit equation. And too often we're focused on the risk without considering the benefit side of that equation. And so we do have to weigh those very, very carefully. You know, just getting back to the testing piece, there's there's a really nice resource, the Choosing Wisely campaign for all the healthcare providers out there. And actually for everyone, the Choosing Wisely campaign speaks directly to, you know, appropriate use of testing and interventions. And it's trying to prevent inappropriate use that then ultimately results in what we were just talking about, iatrogenic disability. So those are recommendations that come from all the medical specialties. Something that started in the States, but then has been done really well in Canada now under the guidance of Wendy Levison uh, at U of T and freely available on the internet. You can look up Choosing Wisely campaign.
1: We'll have it in the show notes. I think that's a really awesome resource for us to think about. Because for some of us who maybe sometimes, especially you know during the last couple of years, we can go down rabbit holes pretty easily and the access mm-hmm. to the opening of the rabbit hole Is but a click away. So, (laughs) you know, we have to recognize that each of us are trained in our own particular domain of expertise. And I think we need to be very careful and cautious in terms of going down those domains. Because even if I do have on an MRI, you know, evidence of some abnormality, but that's not really truly impacting my function and my ADLs or activities of daily living, it's actually not very meaningful.
0: Yeah, it's harmful. It's harmful information if it's not used correctly. Um, I I recall reading an article, um, it must be a few years ago now, I think it was in the Harvard Review Journal, and it was called The Death of Expertise, or something along those lines. Mm. And what it was speaking to was the difference between knowledge and expertise. And what we've Mm. seen with Google and the internet is, it's just amazing the amount of information out there, which is fantastic. I mean, I can do a literature review in a 10th of the time (laughs) that I, I could have done 10 years ago, right? So there's so many benefits to that, but there are risks because- That knowledge is at everyone's fingertips. You can look up knowledge very easily. And a lot of it's reputable. You just have to make sure that you're looking at the right site and the right resource. So always, really carefully vet that when you are acquiring that knowledge. Mm -hmm. But we also always, and this goes for everyone, you know, experts in a field, similarly, don't mistake knowledge for expertise. And And expertise is application of the knowledge. So if I'm seeing a patient in consultation and they have a complex presentation, Mm -hmm. respiratory, neurologic, medical, and I say, whoa, you know what? I'm struggling with these uh, liver function tests, interpreting them. I can look up the knowledge, but I need to apply it. I'm going to ask a hepatologist to weigh in. That's why physicians consult each other, right? Because there's niche areas of of expertise, even though the knowledge is at our fingertips. So yeah, I, I'm not sure how, how we got there, but it's, it's a really important <laughs> distinction. So I, I think it was when you got into the rabbit hole uh, discussion yeah. and we have to be very careful when we're looking up knowledge because it can create disability. It can create well, a lot of concern. And so and you do want to seek out that expert input. One of the you,
1: things that we hear apply. a lot about in, in, in the world today is this concern around self-harm. And what you're saying is that in doing that, one can cause self-harm. Yeah, unknowingly. So let's, Absolutely. Let's, let's try to stay away from those situations, right? Or to use that hockey metaphor, let's stay away from that part of the ice, right? <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. You know, stay, stay away from over there. Um, you know, This is all super, you know, super useful and, and I think very applicable for anyone. And it's not an area that we typically talk about. So again, thank you for sharing that. You know, when you think about the world, though, of brain health and occupational medicine and, and just what we're talking about, and we already started getting into it a bit, are there any level of areas that you'd love to see improve or you're already seeing improving or cause some level of frustration for you as well?
0: For me, it's really system level factors. So in order for somebody to have a successful, the return to activity piece takes consistent and good communication, understanding and, and really education, uh, to help support somebody in the return to activity, uh, the return to work has additional complicating factors because there's a lot of players involved, right? Right. You have the individual patient worker, you have the employer, you may have an insurer, Involved, whether that's a workers' compensation insurer or an auto insurer or Mm -hmm. whoever it is. So, when you have all these stakeholders involved, there's high risk for miscommunication, for people getting mixed messaging and not being on the same page in the whole process. So, for me, the biggest barrier, but also the biggest opportunity is for all the players to be involved, patient centered care. So, that has to be around the individual patient, the individual that's affected, but everyone working in concert with the singular goal of getting that person back to their usual activities or whatever activities they're able to accomplish in a safe manner, right? So how do we do that? It comes down to communication and it comes down to awareness of the roles. So when we get into the roles, what are the roles of different of the different parties here in the return to work process. The role of the healthcare provider is to basically state, all right, what are this person's restrictions, right? And over and above that, what are their limitations? That is the role of the healthcare provider to say the restrictions, limitations that paints a, that is really useful information that can then be utilized by the employer and anyone else that's assisting in the return to work process to find appropriate accommodation. So the good news for all of our Canadian listeners is that in Canada, under provincial human rights legislation, there is a duty to accommodate on the part of the employer. Employers have to accommodate medical restrictions limitations to the point of undue hardship. So that's absolutely essential. That's the cornerstone of everything, because it means that when you, the patient present the employer with restrictions, limitations, and I'm not talking even about medical diagnosis or any personal health information, this is just what you should or should not do. And this is what you can and cannot do. That's the only information the employer needs. And with that information, they can say, all right, well, you know what? You used to lift 50 pounds and climb up on ladders and do all kinds of stuff. And I'm seeing on the restrictions that you can't work at heights. And I'm also seeing on the limitations that you have difficulty lifting more than 10 pounds. So guess what? You're going to be accommodated in this job that you're going to be successful at. Um, so that's. That's how it works. It's just a flow of information and people staying in their lanes. How do things go off track? Things go off track when the healthcare provider says, oh, my patient needs to work at this specific job, right? So give my patient the job of doing the filing for the next three weeks. That's getting out of the lanes, right? So there's a duty on the part of the employer to accommodate, but it's not a specific job. And the healthcare providers unless you're an occupational medicine specialist and you actually visit the site and and go through it all, you don't even know what the uh, available accommodations are, right? Mm -hmm. So if everyone stays in their same lane and works together and the healthcare provider provides the restrictions, limitations, and then the employer accommodates, then people can remain connected with their workplace and working to their abilities without symptom exacerbation and really getting back to where they were. Right. Yeah, that's love, the important thing. Like
1: I just, I really love what you said there. And it really makes me think again about going from the system level to the individual level, the, you know, the whole goal attainment scale, right? Like, yeah. like what is the goal we're trying to achieve here? And then moving that to an enterprise level, <laughs> you know, just trying to think this made me think about it. I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Why it makes so much sense. It really motivates me. I feel privileged to be chatting with you about this. Cause I remember having multiple, well, you've, don't laugh too hard, but I used to play a little bit of football back in the day, and I remember having you know knee surgery and having these issues, uh, you know, orthopedic issues. And then I remember the last concussion that I had and the last time I ever played, you know. And all due respect to everybody over there, great healthcare team, but they just didn't know what to do. Right? Uh-huh. This, the, the plan was not very active, whereas in everything else, it was so incredibly uh, functional and incredibly active. And, you know, 95% of the work was on me <laughs> post-surgery. I had to show the functional capacity. I had to show the engagement in various muscle groups in order to move forward, in order to return to play or return to whatever I was trying to do. But on the cognitive side, it was just, you know, at that point, I think I was in a more of a, um, a fixed brain mindset. I you know, I can I can, I can learn and I've come, I've come away, but you know, it was basically rest and, and, you know, um, take some of these, these medications and, and see. And I also understand why, because we don't always have access to order the imaging that we want to get done because it seems as though we're not presenting with that great concern, which would probably be a bleed, the potential of a bleed, Uh which we uh obviously want to, you know, screen out as quickly as possible. So, you know, I I am just so incredibly optimistic about where the future is going because that's not that long ago. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old. So that's only like 20 years ago. And look at where it's coming to already around, yeah. you know, these kind of these head injury type issues. It's getting there, right? I mean, we are getting there. We're making progress.
0: We're making great progress. Our understanding today is far better than it was even, you know, five, 10 years ago. And I just wanted to comment on something that you raised because it's it's another really important issue since we're talking a lot about work and occupation today and the example you raised was was your sport-related concussion and Mm -hmm. the recovery process from that and so there's of course lots of similarities between sport-related concussion and concussion of other etiologies pathophysiologically they're the exact same but when we talk about the recovery process and the return to activity and return to work versus return to sport, things start to get different, right? So one of the things is that many of the guidelines, whether it's the Berlin guidelines or others, they are very focused on return to play Mm -hmm. and return to play. There's special considerations there because there's risk of repeat head injury, return to work. The vast majority of occupations should not pose risk of head injury. There's a few out there, but the vast majority mm-hmm. do not. And so where we've seen problems, and I'll use that term again, iatrogenic disability, where we've seen that in the world of work is when the return to activity, return to sport guidelines are applied to return to work. Because mm-hmm. they do uh, quite appropriately need to be much more conservative to protect against re-injury. And so while there are many parallels and in the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation guidelines, there's a section on return to work and the guidelines themselves borrow a lot, or in many cases mirror Mm. like the Berlin guidelines, Mm. but um, they do deviate because they get out of that space just in terms of sport and move into Things like return to work, return to school, and again, just important to make that distinction for the listeners.
1: Yeah, and really, one of the more we'll have a link to it, but really, that document that you're citing there is one of the most comprehensive documents available anywhere. But that the Ontario Neurotrava Foundation put together.
0: Yeah, it's it's really well done. Now, obviously, <laughs> I'm a bit biased since I I did <laughs> uh, write the section 12. I was the special contributor to section 12 of the <laughs> return to work, but they are very well done the approach to the guideline development very defensible and mm-hmm. they're comprehensive as you say so one of the problems when you have a comprehensive document like that it's not something you can pick up and read cover to cover <laughs> unless you know I tried. <laughs> no. yeah no. <laughs> so it's good to pick up and, and pick and choose when you're looking for a specific answer but the other thing is is that those guidelines have now transitioned into a living guideline and they're also now online they're much easier now navigate. And there are some tools that to basically operationalize them. So uh, this the Center for Effective Practice, I think, that has a really good, it's short document around you know, concussion assessment, mm-hmm. concussion treatment. And it, in many respects, the, it's it provides a summary of exactly what's presented in the ONF guidelines uh, mm-hmm. and very user friendly because it's such a, a quick, quick read. So regardless of whatever resource people are going to use and it's going to differ depending on their purposes, Mm -hmm. whether they're a clinician or a patient, but you do want to stick to these evidence-based resources, these guidelines.
1: And to keep it really practical, you know, we were talking before, you know, a little bit about, you know, this topic, but also a little bit around sport, you know, and especially around kind of the pediatrics. One of the things that I think we mentioned was I always end up being the kind of safety specialist for my son's hockey team and assistant coach and much more on kind of the health side, you know, when in doubt, sit them out, please, like anybody listening here in any sort of environment like that. And it probably may parlay a little bit into at least getting checked out. If you are at risk of exposure at work, you have a slip and fall, get checked out, like just do it. Don't be the tough person that tries to grind through it because if if you get early intervention on these things, the outcomes are going to be much better. And the pediatrics, I mean, it's one of those things that just, I continue to be baffled. Sorry to go on a tangent, but I'm still the only person I've ever pulled a a kid from play when there might be a concern around any sort of a whiplash or concussion type injury. You know, if you pull them out, the odds are so much better of a full recovery than the risk of a second impact. You know, when we look at over in your province, you know, Rowan's Law and some of the other advocacy work that have been done with some of the people who have been featured on this podcast. You know, please, please, if you're listening to this, have that conversation around the dinner table one day. You'll be really happy you did, whether it's around anything related to the topic we're talking about today, but just in general around your health. If something isn't feeling right, get it checked out. Have the Absolutely. conversation. Be yeah. vulnerable. Just bring it up, okay? This is the the guy who used to, oh, I'll be fine, I'll walk it off. I'm just trying to undo some of the bad I did back in those days. When in doubt, please just, have that conversation, go get it checked out. And in some cases you may just sleep one. Well, thank goodness they did that. And actually I'm feeling, I am feeling pretty darn good. Well, that's yeah, a good thing. I, right? it's, I'm glad that you
0: raised, I'm glad you raised that because it is such an important point. We, again, to our Canadian listeners, we're very lucky to live in oh. a country where healthcare is readily accessible and you need to have a very low threshold to seek out that expertise. And, If it results in reassurance, that's great. Mm -hmm. If it results in, hey, let's check this out. You know, maybe there's a little something concerning here. You know, as Mark says, you're going to be glad you did it. There was never a bad outcome because you sat out the rest of that game for any age Right. With none of us. Uh, well, I don't know. Some of the listeners may be in the NHL or, or but uh, for <laughs> then you're going to have really uh, good access to your healthcare. But regardless, this gets back to the risk benefit equation we talked about before. Mm-hmm. And if you have concerning symptoms, if there's a question mark in your mind, mm, I'm not really sure. Then you seek out that expertise. Absolutely. Very Love important it. messaging. Love there.
1: it. Listen up. You know, it's a, a big amen moment. Just listen up there to think about it, keeping it very tangible, and deliverable you know there's a very simple piece of guidance yeah and
0: you mentioned rowan's law which it's been really really effective in Mm -hmm. ontario for raising awareness Mm -hmm. and being a father myself my my girls are 12 and and 14 and very active in sport and i'm always so thankful when i every activity they do when that email comes in and it says read rowan's Mm -hmm. law you're aware of rowan's law you know uh basically checkbox here Mm. to make sure you will adhere to the protocols, concussion protocols, et cetera. I'm always so thankful to see that. And if nothing
1: else, that legislation
0: has really raised awareness in a very important area
1: of pediatric concussion. So obviously Aaron, very brilliant guy. He's done a lot in this space, right? He loves to educate. He's a wonderful educator as we're learning here today. And I'm sure many students can attest. Are there any key influences that really help to frame some of it? Could even just be your mindset toward this work or maybe a key piece of literature that helped you to really delve deeper and sink your teeth into occupational health? Just always looking for to build that reading list. Yeah.
0: Well, mine might not be of uh, general interest. Um, You know, I got into the field of occupational medicine very early on in my medical training when I was still in medical school. Mm. And it was on the advice of one of my early mentors, Dr. Michael Wills, who said, read Exploring the Dangerous Trades. Mm. It's the biography of Dr. Alice Hamilton. Who she was actually the first female faculty member at Harvard Medical School. Mm. And she's considered the mother of occupational medicine. Mm. After reading that biography, I said, I am going to be an occupational medicine physician because it was so inspiring. So that's the occupational health side of things. Now, I know our listeners are more interested in the biography I said. I am going to be an occupational medicine physician because it was so inspiring. So that's the occupational health side of things. Now, I know our listeners are more interested in the in the brain injury side of things. So I don't have a particular reference. I would say that Having worked with Charles Tatter, Mark Bailey, Sean Marshall, they're really the ones that pulled me into the field, getting me involved in the ONF guidelines because of my experience in basically in occupational medicine, but also in program design. So Mm -hmm. developing programs for patients that assist with system navigation and evidence-based protocols for assessment and treatments. So we've published in that area, primarily in the workers' compensation sphere. But mm-hmm. I would say that the mentorship of, of those folks and having the opportunity to work with them has been really exceptional. And I mean, if there's one document that I would point to, it would be one we've already discussed, it's the ONF guidelines. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're a living guideline now and you know, we get together as a group, as an expert committee to go over and update those guidelines regularly. So we can really be confident that, they're up to date and the hope is that they're user-friendly and they have an impact in improving not just the assessment, but the management and, and getting people back, restoring that quality of life. That's obviously the ultimate goal for, for all our patients. I love it.
1: I mean, let me ask you this. So for me, and I mean, I can very confidently say this isn't something that going back through these guidelines, isn't something that, you know, is, you know, financially re- rewarding for you. Obviously, it's not, but I can see just in your eyes, like it's really meaningful because and correct me if I'm wrong, I think, you know, in doing that, it really speaks to why you're in this occupational medicine work is to provide a process and information to people that can really help them to better navigate what can be a very complex situation for them. And by providing this service, I mean, these guidelines are there. They're just available to you. What motivated you though? Was it just to give access to this information to any any and all?
0: When I see improvements in the data in terms of recovery and return to work at at the large scale, that's very satisfying. It's even more satisfying when I hear the personal stories. Mm. Um, I remember presenting on a model of care we had designed for concussion, uh, again, in the workers' compensation Mm -hmm. space. And this was an early assessment program for individuals that sustained concussion at work. And it was an early assessment program to really get a good expert assessment, appropriate triage and management recommendations. And I had I had seen the data, I crunched the data, I published the data, showing that this had resulted in a significant decrease in disability as measured by the time it took for people to get back to work. Right. Now, that was really satisfying, but presenting that work, I'll never forget somebody coming up to me and I thought, okay, they have a, this is a researcher or somebody that's, sure. that's coming up to ask questions. And it turned out it was a patient and it was a patient that lived in a remote area mm-hmm. and they said, I want to thank you. And I said, for what? <laughs> and they said, you know, I sustained a concussion. And it wasn't even a work related concussion. I sustained a concussion. And I spent months trying to get the right advice, trying to have somebody do an assessment mm-hmm. for me that and to tell me what's wrong and tell me what to do. And I was getting a bunch of question marks. I was getting bad advice. I was things that I knew were wrong, you know, to to just stay in bed or the Mm -hmm. dark room, like things that I knew were wrong, but I didn't know what was right. And then I saw this physician who did the most thorough assessment, exactly what I was looking for. And they put me right back. They put me on the right track and prescribed the appropriate treatments and Lo and behold, I am so much better than I was. And that physician, what I then found out was they were trained in this early assessment program and they were providing this care to workers that were Mm -hmm. being seen through the workers' Compensation Board, but they were applying the exact same program and principles to their non-occupational patients, which is what I got. So this patient said, I wanted to thank you because this helped me this really helped me. And I live in a remote area and it took me months before to, before I came across this. So that's, you, you asked Mark what yeah. drives you. That's what drives I me. I love it.
1: Oh, I love it. And it, it just shows in, in what you do. And I just want to acknowledge you for doing that. You, it shows. I mean, it's kind of rare you find somebody who's as intellectual and teaching at a very high level, a medical doctor, but also really dialed in on kind of, allowing their purpose to fuel their actions. So thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Clearly you've got some great mentors too and, and a wonderful family who, who is there for you. Um, what is your hope for the future? This last question in this world. And I think you already hit on it. So it might be a very easy sort of mic drop moment for you. <laughs>
0: I, I, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite easy. I just want patients to get evidence-based care. And if we're following the best evidence and we're avoiding iatrogenic disability, I'll use the term just one last time here, everything for all of us in the healthcare world, it's first do no harm. Mm -hmm. And so if people are applying the best evidence through the application of guidelines and, you know, helping patients to the best of their ability and restoring quality of life and function, that's, that's my hope. That's my hope. And it's not we, we talked about this before. It's not actually, you know, the knowledge in many respects is there, but we need to break down the barriers in terms of communication and really educate so that everyone's on the same page, working towards the same goal. That's my hope. Love it.
1: And I, I think through your actions and, and many others, uh, we're getting there. We're definitely, I, I believe, I, I really do measure ourselves backwards. It's definitely getting better. Even since uh, I've been in this space, I'm seeing it definitely improve and it's only going to get better as long as we're having these kinds of conversations and sharing this sort of information for, for the general public. So again, Aaron, thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate it. And who knows, maybe it's something we could do again at another time. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity, Mark. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, training is very accessible, and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neuro rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the BEARS platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The BEARS platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.